0: Well, we are blessed indeed. Thank you guys for leading us so well. We're back in the Gospel of John. We had a wonderful sports camp. We had a lovely Reformation Sunday last week, considering Sola Fide. And now we're back in this precious Gospel. And I know you know the purpose of this Gospel. I know you do. It was written, John twenty thirty one, that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and in believing we might have life in His name. And so, I mention that afresh here now because, as you've heard me say many times, the Gospel of John has an evangelistic focus. And it also has an experiential focus, and that word experiential can sometimes get lost in the clouds, as it were, and we wonder what that means, and one of my favorite books on preaching is called Reformed Preaching, Experiential Preaching by Dr. Joel Beakey, and the concept of experiential seeks to bring the truth of God, the Word of God, down into the life of the believer, and... The vast majority of us here gathered are saints, we've been redeemed, we've received the new birth, we've been born from above by the Spirit of God, and yet a local church with a crowd this size, there are those who have not yet been born again, there are those who are not Christian. And so the Word of God to you from the Gospel of John is always evangelistic, that you might believe. To the saint, it's experiential. And sometimes preachers have to work hard to bring the text down experientially into the life of their people. Today, I don't have to do that. Today, we come to a portion of Scripture and a particular verse of Scripture that many of you know. And experientially, it just dives right into our heart and soul And it's verse 35 of John 13. You know, if you're with us, we're in John chapter 13. We're in the upper room. It's just begun. We're beginning the discourse, John 13 through to John 17. And we are on our way. And so the last time we were together, we finished in verse 30. And so we pick up now in verse 31. Our focus this morning will be to verse 35, but I do just want to read to verse 38. And so follow along with me in your bibles and when we get to verse 35 you will feel the experiential tincture of this passage verse 31 therefore when he had gone out that's judas he'd gone out jesus said now is the son of man glorified and god is glorified in him if god is glorified in him god will also glorify him in himself and we'll glorify Him immediately. Little children. I'm with you a little while longer. You'll seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. I've made mention each time we've been in John 13 that the old Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren said, when these verses in the Upper Room Discourse are examined with proper reverential excitement, they will accomplish great good in our Lives, And this morning, I have three simple headings for you as we consider verses 31 to 35, and uh, I want to just work our way through those and see what God might do through His Word, by His Spirit, in our time together. The very first thing we see in our passage is very simply, if you're taking notes, God's glory. God's glory in verses 31 and 32. when he had gone out, verse 31 says. As I said, Judas had left. Last time we were together, we noticed that encounter where Jesus declared that one of them would betray. There was that quiet, intimate discussion between John, Peter, and Jesus, and those three uh, were all aware that it was Judas. Jesus declared that Judas must get out and do it quickly, and he left, and it was night. And then... Jesus, with Judas now gone, it really is the beginning of what you could call the true upper room discourse. It begins now, verse 31 through to the end of chapter 16, is where Jesus gives his final, full farewell to the 11 disciples. For so long we've been 12, and now we're down to 11 true disciples. And this here is full of glory and full of truth to them. But it's also full of glory and truth to us. And how can we be so certain of that, that they are words for us? Well, if you think about it, after this discourse, verse 31 to the end of chapter 16, Jesus then prays to the Father in John chapter 17. And he prays specifically that what they have heard, what they have seen would be planted deep in them that the father would keep them is what the son prays and he also prays that they would be one that they would display a precious unity as being one but included in that prayer Jesus also prays for others like them and that's us that's the believer and so These words are certainly words for us today. We are in the upper room, if you will. All saints throughout all the ages are. And so let's look at verses 31 to 32 together. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately, quite the sentence. If you and I spoke that, we'd say, hang on, whoa, whoa." Which hymn are you talking about? You kind of lost me there. But really what's going on there is is Christ is saying God will glorify his son immediately. At once this will happen. Judas and the devil inside of him are gone. And what now comes out of Jesus is almost said in in somewhat excited tones of enthusiasm. All while the topic at hand being very deep and, and serious. The group has been purged, as it were. And now glory is freely and fully mentioned from the Lord. God's glory always shines brightest in holiness. Judas is now acting out that betrayal. He has taken the money and he is full steam ahead. We saw that his betrayal is prophecy predicted and fulfilled. And we also saw that Judas's betrayal is very much the event that triggers the commencement of Jesus being handed over, arrested, tried and crucified. And so in these opening verses here, Jesus is talking about the cross where he will be from a human vantage point taken to the darkest place. But from God's place, glory will be revealed and showcased like no other to the world as the beloved son is made sin, as the beloved son in obedience to the father's will goes to the cross so as to redeem and restore a people that will bring him glory. How will those people that are redeemed and restored bring God glory? Well, they'll do so through their transformation of their life their altered affections in their life, their very way of life amidst the the very crooked and perverse world. That's how. And so when Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, he's referring to his death, which is now, emphasis on the word now, because after 33 years, tomorrow it'll occur. He's on the eve, he's saying now it's going to occur. And Jesus says, this is glory. This is how God will be glorified. How is the cross of Christ, the glorification? How is there glory in the cross? Well, first, I want you to not miss that little phrase. It's very important there. Look with me in verse 31. The Son of Man. The Son of Man. In Daniel 7, you might recall... That phrase, the Son of Man. Daniel 7, verses 13, 14 and onwards is just this glory-filled scene in heaven's glory where the Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days. That is, the Eternal Son, the Son of Man, is presented before the Eternal Father, the Ancient of Days. And what happens in that account? The Father, the Eternal Father, gives to the Son... A kingdom, a kingdom that is unshakable, a kingdom that is everlasting, meaning it's forever, and a kingdom that is full of glory. And so Jesus is saying here that the Son of Man has come down from heaven's glory where a kingdom was promised him, given to him, and he is now heading to the cross about to purchase that promised kingdom by dying to save those who who are in that kingdom, and purchase for those who are in that kingdom, kingdom blessings and spiritual blessings, of which are so vast and so immense, that if you start to count them, you won't be able to stop, as I think Andrew said at a staff meeting recently. I like that. You see, the Son of Man, He's also... The second Adam, the son of man, is also the second Adam. And the first Adam, the first man, failed in his obedience. He failed. We were all plunged into death. But the second Adam didn't fail in his obedience. He conquered in his obedience by living in obedience to the Father. And so the glory of the Son is to bring glory of the Father through His obedience, Jesus in His humanity learned obedience as a Son. And This is all part of what it means for God to glorify the Son immediately, at once. Another aspect to the cross, bringing glorification to God in the Son and the Father is that the cross is what destroyed the works of the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since the children are sharing in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus himself, likewise also partook of the same flesh and blood, that through death on the cross he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now we understand that the devil still roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We don't believe that the devil is somehow locked away right now. We believe that he certainly has influence over the world. And if believers aren't careful, he can have certain influence over them. But we believe what this verse says, that he has been rendered powerless over death. Praise God that Jesus went to the cross. That when you and I die in this life, we're just simply done with dying and we go to be in eternal glory where we'll live forever. That's good news. On the cross, the devil was dealt a very deadly blow death which he had over us has been defeated and in a time to come he the devil will be cast altogether from this world there's another facet yet though to all this is the fact that jesus will glorify himself and his father when he goes to the cross by wiping away all our sin past present and future we just celebrated reformation sunday the Reformation restored what Roman Catholicism sought to implant in there is that your sins are never truly washed away. You have to earn it and you can get into this state of grace but then if you sin you fall from grace and then you have to earn it again. What a joy to know because Jesus went to the cross there's now no condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus. As I get older I just love that more and more. I know you do as well. This Christ, this Lamb of God, will wipe away all our sin. He has all the punishment that was due us. He took in His body on the cross. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says, It was fitting for Him, Christ, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. To glory. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. You know, one commentator said this, the manner in which he wrought this work glorified him. He was a willing sufferer. The price was cheerfully paid. He was led, not driven. He went willingly as a lamb to the slaughter. He endured the cross. He thought nothing of the shame. And not until justice and law were fully satisfied did he cry out, it is finished. end quote. And there's just one last thing, that name, the Son of Man who came to die, He's now in heaven. (laughs) He is now ruling and reigning, fully exalted as Lord at God the Father's right hand, all because He was obedient to the Father's will. You know Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For this reason also, what reason? The reason He was obedient to His Father. God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. The next verse tells you that it's not the name Jesus, it's the name Lord. Lord. Look again at verse 32. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him Immediately, Jesus is saying, not only does He as the Son bring glory in what He does, but also God the Father was glorified in and by what He did. Jesus did. There's a number of attributes of God that are on display here, hidden away for us to to think about. A.W. Pink, in his commentary, he offers up four ways that this was the case. First, Christ's death displayed God's power. God's power God is a powerful God for through the cross God put an end to sin and death and the devil he he is powerful second Christ's death displayed God's justice God's justice was declared through the cross in that God's law meant sin had to be punished God is a God of justice and therefore someone has to die And so perfect justice was met Perfect justice was not overlooked. If perfect justice was overlooked, then God is not perfect in His justice, but He is perfect and justice was not overlooked. Third, God's holiness is displayed through the cross. You think about that, since God could not even look at evil. And sin with absolutely any favor, I believe Habakkuk tells us. You know, the father, he turned his face away. We sing about that. The son was experiencing this deep mystery of momentary turning away. And he cried out, didn't he? Eloi, Eloi lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So holy is our our God. There's another attribute that rings out here. Fourth, God's faithfulness is on display. God's faithfulness is on display through Jesus' death on the cross. You remember way back in Genesis chapter three fifteen, God, right after the fall, promises immediately grace, a redeemer, through Christ. And so here's Christ. The night before he's about to go to the cross and way back in Genesis 3.15, it was promised and way before Genesis 1.1 in eternity past, Christ was promised as a plan between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so here he is fulfilling his promise. God is faithful to ransom and rescue a people for his own possession. And so right out the gate here, as the true discourse begins, Judas is gone, only believers, glory is the theme glory glory by way of the glory of the son and we've heard it all along haven't we time and time again i've said we must always look at this gospel through the lens of john 1 the word christ became flesh and he dwelt among us he tabernacled among us and we saw his glory we saw his glory We saw glimpses of his glory all along. You remember way back at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus goes to a wedding. It's this long party, lots of music, and he turns the water into wine so as to reveal his glory. And then later on, after the other signs that happened, he raises Lazarus from the dead as another sign of his glory. But here now, on the eve of the cross, right at the cross, now the Son of Man will be glorified. Glory is revealed through his death and all about God that is displayed will be revealed and then the full manifestation of his glory will be when he rises again in resurrection, power and glory. And so Jesus is rightly fixed on the glory of God here. Think about this. Specifically, in His final words to His people before He departs, He is fixated initially, in the opening thing, on God's glory. That's important for us. You and I, therefore, ought to be fixated and focused on God's glory. You and I ought always have 1 Corinthians ten thirty one tucked away deep in our heart to ever bring to mind when we are faced with that which will not bring God glory and we'll say whatever we do whether we eat or drink whether the most meaningful task or whatever it is we'll think can I do it to the glory of God and if I can't do it to the glory of God then I won't do it we must be fixated on the glory of God After speaking to that, Jesus then moves to a very another important aspect and lesson for us. And I don't want you to miss this. It's the second heading. We've seen God's glory. Now we see second, God's children. God's children. Look at verse 33. Remarkably, Jesus turns to them and to us and he says, little children little children. I'm with you a little while longer. You'll seek me. And as I said to the Jews, that is the religious leaders earlier, now i also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus called them little children. You know, as he does that, Quite remarkably, Jesus takes on this fatherly, leader of the house kind of role. A paternal role. A little children is one word in the Greek. It occurs, occurs only once here in John and then just one other place in First John. No surprise. It's a deep and rich word. It conveys the idea of a a very deep love and care which parents have over their children. Think of the deep love and concern and care you have for your own children or children in your family like nieces and nephews, the little ones. When any of those little ones get sick or break a bone or get injured, you feel something deep inside of you. I mean, be around a parent who has momentarily lost one of their kids in a shopping center. You know, you and I, well, you observed I, fresh from California, that has the highest rate of child abduction anywhere in America. And when we first moved here, I forgot that I was in this semi-rural area, but I just had this immense fear when the kids were missing, that something bad had happened to them. Little did I know that, you know, this property is pretty safe. But it was just ingrained in you to be, to be worried about your children. Jesus has that same care and concern for each and every one of us. He, he, he loves us with a deep parenting love. You think about that love you have for your children, and it's not perfect. You and I fail in that. Christ has a perfect love, a deep, deep, deep love for His children. He says, I'm, I'm with you just a little longer. Why? Because I'm going to the cross. You can't come, He says. He's also saying, you'll be dismayed in my absence, but it's to your benefit that I go. Is what Jesus will shortly say in John chapter 16. Why? Because he'll then send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. But fear not, he's saying, I'm, I'm with you, you are my little children. I want you to think about that for a moment. You know, J. O. Packer, he said this quote, if you want to judge. How well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. End quote. Do you know that the Puritans believed that adoption was the central benefit of salvation? You and I have missed something. I can't help but wonder if there's a sense of selfishness that the forgiveness of sins is often the sole and primary benefit we consider. you thought about that before? I just thought about that now. (laughs) That, That we sometimes have made Christianity all about my sins forgiven. Our sins are forgiven and it's immense. Don't think I'm downplaying the forgiveness of sins, for without the forgiveness of sins, there is no reconciliation with God, no peace with God, no eternal life, but that's something when the Puritans say that our adoption as children is the central benefit of salvation. I think if you go around the room and ask a lot of people, what benefits do you receive from Christianity? Adoption is way down the list. When Jesus would teach His disciples to pray, He taught us, right, to begin each prayer with our Father. Of primary importance, Jesus says to His children, I want you to always acknowledge that you have a Father. Oh, and by the way, holy be His name. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, we read that the Holy Spirit in us, that's been given to us, causes our hearts to call out, Abba, Father. You know, it's been well said that when believers fail to live in light of their adoption, they will assume a slave mentality with regard to their relationship. To God. I want you to think about that. If you and I just think of Christianity as sins forgiven and a slave, we have missed the very crucial part of the experiential Christian life. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Our adoption as the children of God is built upon and established by that eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. We were saved to experience what the Son has only ever experienced eternally, and that is sonship, adoption. Not that the Son was adopted, but you and I are taken in to that relationship between the Father and the Son, and in many ways I can't escape this, that salvation is, again, so much more than simply just sins forgiven. Salvation is where Christ takes us and presents us before the Father to share in what He has only ever experienced eternally, and that is the precious Sonship. And that is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. There is a depth and a richness to the Christian life that you and I would do well to ever plumb the depths of because, do you know, there's more below that too? If we kept looking, there's more and then there's more and more. We are carried into that adoption through Christ's love and His work for us. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all working inseparably in their operations to apply to us the spiritual blessing of adoption as one of god's children you know this verse very well first john chapter 3 verse 1 how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we shall be called the children of god and such we are for this reason the world does not know us (laughs) because it did not know him We're God's children, and never forget that. God's glory, God's children, and now, third and final, God's love, God's love. Look at verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men, that is all humanity, all people will know that you are my disciples, If you have love for one another, just very quickly, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say that you will become my disciples if you have love for one another. Don't get that messed up. We become disciples by faith and by faith alone. The fruit of that faith is is love. But love is not the grounds of our salvation. And Jesus says, a new commandment. That surely would have caused their there ears to prick up. A new commandment. In what way was this a new commandment? You know, the Old Testament spoke of loving God and loving people. It was clear in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, Leviticus nineteen, eighteen: love God, love neighbor. That's the command, love, love, love. And so what makes this new? Well, what makes it new is it begins with the fact that Christ is calling them clearly to to show love to others, just as He has shown love to them. But that's not all. This really is the commandment from God in the Old Testament, given new and greater significance in that it is fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so because it is fulfilled in the person of Christ and it, the fact that it is anchored in the person of Christ and His love for His people, then His people now have a deeper, higher, larger, more pronounced call to love other people. It's almost like this: the Old Testament was this old law. True, but straight law. Now, this new commandment comes deeply anchored in the gospel. Because when we love other people, it has a massive effect for the gospel. Loving other people is not the gospel. I want you to hear me clearly. Loving other people is not the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus did for us. But this has a major effect for the gospel when we love one another one of the earliest church theologians, fathers, Tertullian, he, he wrote of the pagans saying things like, see how those Christians love one another. It's been said that that is a, an excellent apologetic for the faith. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I read it earlier, on purpose, and I want us to look at it again. Verse 1 there says, be imitators of God. First and only time anywhere in Scripture we are told to imitate God. Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. You take that phrase, imitate God as beloved children, living in love. Look at verse 32, just above it. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. Look at verse 2, the rest of it walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. How did Christ love you? He died on the cross to save you from your sins and to reconcile you to holy God and grant you eternal life and peace with God and adoption. He gave himself up for us, it says, on the cross. And so, forgiveness prior to the command to imitate God and forgiveness right after the command to imitate God. And so, what's a chief way we love one another? We forgive one another. Forgive. You know, it's been well said that you need a theology of suffering before you suffer. Well, as I thought about this this week, I thought, we need a theology of loving one another before the pressure really comes. Because I'm just going to tell you, over the last two and a half, three years, through all that we went through in this crazy world of ours, you and I didn't always do a good job of loving one another and forgiving one another, did we? Didn't. That's just a stone-cold fact. I mean, whatever side of the aisle you fell on, we all fell on different aisles, different sides, rather. And so what we need to do is instead of when suffering comes and figure out a theology of suffering, then that's too late. We need to think hard and work hard about loving one another when the real affliction and pressure is not on. And we all need to learn from that. So, when it happens again, we do a little better. Say that as your pastor. I want you to turn with me to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, Chapter Three. Look at verse 12. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. That tells me that me and you, Riverbend Bible Church, can do better than we're doing now. We can actually have it as a focus in our heart and mind... do better. Look at verse 13, so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4, finally then brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one transgress sin against and defraud his brother or his sister. In the manner, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Look at verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren in all Macedonia. Look at this. But we urge you, brethren to excel still more. Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. Look at this, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. You know, how we love one another is really We take a thread, back to John 13 now, we take a thread and we run it through our passage and it ties it all together. What do I mean? We focus on God's glory. We rejoice in that we're God's children. As God's children, we're called to imitate God as beloved children. And we love one another. God's glory, God's children, and God's love. You know, I just want to say this as well. Part of loving one another means not avoiding one another, but actually pressing in to one another. You talk to any family, earthly family, there is not always but often a one-to-one correlation. Families that sweep things under the rug and avoid issues have long-term problems. (laughs) Families that get together and actually talk things out, stabilize. You got a problem, don't avoid it, don't balk at it, don't bypass it. Imitate God. Walk as beloved children. Forgive just as you've been forgiven. Let love cover a multitude of sins. Be kind. Be tenderhearted. Don't ignore and avoid people. Press in. This is God's word to you and to me. I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. And I want to ask you to stand with me. First John, chapter four, and look at verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves Beloved, if God so loved us, we, all, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Look at this, we love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother or sister, then he or she is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother or his sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother also. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you that we have the privilege to be one of your children. Thank you that we have the grace-wrought ability to bring you glory by loving one another. Father, we acknowledge that we don't do that perfectly. We acknowledge Lord that we haven't done that perfectly. Father, this is the love of God that we keep your commandments and your commandments are not burdensome. We've been born of God. We have true and genuine faith. You sent your beloved son and we have received of him. We love because You first loved us. Help us to love one another. May this really be a watershed moment in the life of our church. Where we, like the church at Thessalonica, was urged to excel still more. Father, by your spirit, you can work that out, how that plays out. And we ask you, please, to do that in each of our hearts. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. Help us to live afresh in light of his lordship. Help us to obey out of gratitude. Help us to keep and abide in your love. We pray this so that you would get all glory. Help us as we fellowship now to live in light of these truths experientially. We thank you for this precious time and the way in which you love us. Father, we we ask that you'd please help us. We know that you're graceful, gracious to do so. For anyone here, standing here, Lord, with a heart that hasn't yet committed to Christ, would today be the day of their salvation? And we pray so desperately, Lord, would today be the day of our significant sanctification? As we take the word of God to us, we live out loving one another. Satan will hate What's happening right now and seek to interrupt. Lord, would you cause us all to put on the full armor of God, which includes love. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. May God bless you.